If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hey there, kids. It's me, Mr. Creepypasta, and I just want to remind you that David Farrow does have a book out currently as well. In fact, he's got two. The Neverglade Mysteries, Volumes 1 and 2, are available right now on Amazon, and you can find them through the link in the description down below. And now, on to the very much-awaited next episode of the Neverglade Mysteries. Being awoken at 3am to come check out a body is probably one of the shittiest things about being a cop. you think murderers would have the decency to at least wait until morning to get all stabby. These things happen, though, far more frequently than I'd like to admit, so I wasn't surprised at all when the call came in during the dead of night. Two Vicks, middle-aged, hearts and lungs missing, was how they phrased it. I could already tell this one was going to be a doozy. Pleasant Street was lined with police cars when I pulled up in my cruiser. Flashing reds and blues lit up the quiet stretch of the neighborhood. I stepped into the driveway of the house in question and ducked underneath the crime scene tape. It was a few cops milling about the foyer and kitchen, swabbing every surface they could find for evidence. I wasn't shocked to see that the inspector was among them. He was discussing something at a low volume with two other officers, his cigar smoke curling up in blue spirals near the ceiling. Their conversation died when they saw me approach. The inspector turned to greet me, tipping his fedora ever so slightly. Sheriff Marconi, he said. I thought you might have caught wind of this one. Nothing gets by me, I replied. That's why they pay me the big bucks. What kind of case are we dealing with? The first officer, a rookie from the precinct I barely recognized, cast a nervous glance towards the stairs. Double murder. Uh, victim's names are James and Marie Dupont. Uh, both were biology teachers down at the uh, Pacific High School. No kids, just a dog named Darwin who seems to have gone missing. Only sign of forced entry was a shattered window in the second floor bedroom where the bodies were discovered. I take the corpses aren't pretty, I said. The second officer looked grim. You should see for yourself, Sheriff. Forensics just wrapped up in there, and, um, well, a few of them came out puking. I thought those boys had tougher stomachs, I joked. But it did little to lighten the mood. The inspector and I excused ourselves and headed upstairs, with a strobe of police lights still flashed through the window in the hall. It wasn't hard to tell which room was the crime scene. The bedroom door was hanging half open. The space inside lit up by the glare of forensics floodlights. The inspector pushed it open all the way and gestured for me to enter. Now I've seen some grisly stuff on the force. Hopelessly mangled bodies, throats slit, limbs ripped from their sockets, you name it. But the carnage we found in the Dupont's bedroom might have taken the cake. The report had said hearts and lungs missing, which was clear enough, but it had neglected to mention the large chunks of viscera that had been ripped from the chest to get to those inner organs. Spattery bits of gut and muscle were sprayed across every surface of the room. Marie's head had been torn from her body, 
leaving the top of her spine exposed. James's had been crushed into a messy pulp. The few stretches of exposed skin we could see were lacerated with deep slash marks. No human did this, the inspector said quietly. My nose tickled with dead body stench. Suddenly I understood the impulse to puke. Holding my sleeve over my mouth, I asked, Do you know what kind of monster we're dealing with? I can think of several entities who feed on human organs. None of them are strong enough to cross into this world on their own, which means we've got worse problems than some kind of murderous, flaying beast. Could it? I started, but the inspector held up a hand to hush me. Do you hear something? I listened. At first I couldn't make out anything except the shuffling of cops' footsteps downstairs. Then I heard another sound. A deep, low growling like an animal with its its hackles bared. I left the bodies and I approached the shattered bedroom window. In the darkness of the backyard, I saw a large German shepherd pacing around the DuPont's tool shed, his teeth drawn back into a threatening snarl. That must be their missing dog, I said. Darwin, what's he doing down there? He's found something, the inspector stated. Before I knew what was happening, he'd flung open the window frame and vaulted through the gap, his trench coat flapping behind him like a pair of wings. I never actually saw him fall. In the time it took me to blink, he was already striding across the grass towards the tool shed. Like hell, I was jumping out of a window. I took the stairs like a sane person, and I slid open the screen door to the backyard, taking a step out into the night. Darwin's growl was louder now, with a guttural whine that I'd never heard from a dog's throat before. The inspector circled the tool shed and examined the wooden door. The padlocks have been torn apart, he observed. And look. Smeared across the edge of the doorframe were a few thin streaks of blood, still wet and glistening. We exchanged a wary look. I drew my pistol from its holster and I lifted it to the twisted padlock. The inspector wrapped his fingers around the handle, and then with a nod, he flung open the tool shed door. I fully expected to be tackled by some creature with gnashing teeth and dagger blades for hands, but instead, I found myself staring at, of all things, a human skeleton. It was slouched against a lawnmower, head hanging low, its fingers and ribcage stained with blood. Something was dripping steadily from inside its chest, and it took me a second to realize that it was the Dupont's missing organs. They were crammed into the ribcage like a, like a chunk of bleeding butcher's meat. Is that our killer? I asked. I inched closer and nudged it with my pistol, but it didn't move. The bones brushed against each other with a plastic clack. It's not even a real skeleton, I said. It's one of those anatomy models. The inspector drew in a hiss of breath. Of course, he said. The Duponts were biology teachers, do you remember? And they were murdered by a tool from their classroom. The real killer, the one pulling the strings here... Must have thought that would be funny. I take it that you have a hunch who's all behind this? Thanks, Olivia. The smoke from his cigar turned an acidic yellow. What being do we know of that has the power to animate the non-living, to bring reflections to life, 
What being would have a reason to murder Glade citizens in such a horribly specific way? I felt the skin prickle on my neck. You mean the semblance? The inspector nodded. It's taunting us, leaving a calling card, trying to draw us out. But you didn't know the DuPonts, I said. Last time we saw the thing, it said that it was going after the people that you loved. Why would it target some random citizens? Because I love this town. Because I've made it my mission to protect the people of Pacific Glade. And the semblance knows that. He wants to show me that nowhere is safe. That it can strike anywhere. Take lives without discrimination. And there's nothing I can do to prevent it. Call me simple. But icing the semblance seems like a good place to start. I stuck my pistol back into its holster. I'll head down to the station and do some digging, see if other weird cases have popped up recently. Why don't you keep an eye out around town? The inspector nodded. I can't predict where the semblance will strike again, but if it makes a move, I'll know it. Keep your phone on you. I'll call you if anything comes up. Sounds good, I said. The inspector took his leave with a quick tip of his fedora, gliding out the backyard as smoothly as walking on ice. I turned back to the bloody skeleton, watching as the loose organs drop steadily onto the floorboards. And then I closed the shed door. I had a feeling it wouldn't be the only grisly scene that we'd encounter before the week was up. As much as I would love to crawl back into bed, I knew that I had to head down to the precinct and do some research. A good cop doesn't waste a second. And besides, there were monsters running amok, and I wasn't going to stick around waiting for someone else to get slaughtered. It was time to hit the database. The sun was just barely poking its face above the mountains when I arrived at the station. One of the few recruits was stationed at the front desk, and he gave me a polite nod as I entered. I nodded back and headed straight to my office. There weren't many people milling about the station at this hour, although I could hear Larry, the drunk wonder, snoring away in one of the holding cells down the hall. I draped my coat over the back of a chair, and I got to work. The station computers were a few years out of date, but they got the job done. And before long, I was sifting through death records from the last few weeks. I wasn't quite sure what I was looking for. The inspector thought that the semblance was leaving calling cards to draw us out. If so, I wasn't seeing them. There was a couple of hit and runs, a bunch of old folks who dropped dead of heart attacks, but none of the cases seemed eldritch monster from another dimension. I moved on to some of the less fatal incident reports, hoping to spot a pattern, when I heard a sharp rapping on the doorframe. I turned to see Zachary Atwater poking his head into my office. The newbie had trimmed his beard and slicked back his black mop hair, like he'd cleaned up for a job interview or something. I clicked back to my browser and tried to pretend that he wasn't there. Sheriff, he said, missing the point. I was hoping I could talk to you. What is it, rookie? I sighed. Some of the other guys, they were saying that the inspector's back. You know, the, the guy who helped us with those zombies the other week? No one seems to know the details, but it's pretty clear that he's working on another case. What about you? So? I asked. So? He said pointedly. I'm on in. I didn't even look up for my computer. No, you don't. He actually sputtered like an indignant little kid. Look, he said. I'm sorry I was skeptical before, because there's a lot of weird stuff out there. I get that now, and I, I shouldn't have brushed that off the way I did, but we made a good team, you and me. 
and the inspector. You know, we we took down the that uh, semblance thing together. If I remember correctly, you tried to arrest it. I said. Atwater's face went red. But I I didn't know what I was dealing with then, but I do now. Do you though? I asked, and this time I did turn to face him, fixing him with one of my hardest Marconi gazes. I could see him wither. For someone with a frame of a football jock and all the easy arrogance of a frat boy, it doesn't take much to knock Zachary Atwater off his game. Let me tell you what happened to the inspector's last partner, I said. Mark Hannigan. Best homicide detective this department had ever seen. I give him shit all the time, but only because I knew that he could take it. He fought alongside the inspector more times than I can count, keeping this town safe one monster at a time, but he suffered for it. He lost his home. He lost his son. He even gave his own life to keep the whole world from getting devoured by the monster of all monsters. Atwater had gone quiet. I rose from my computer, pushing my chair back with a scrape. This isn't the kind of job where you just hang up your gun and call it a night, rookie. If you're in this fight, you're in it till the day you stop breathing, and you will stop breathing. Sooner or later, this life catches up to you. It's just a matter of time. I glanced at the framed photograph on my desk. It was a picture of Mark, taken at a company dinner, his hair combed, Smile wide. How many times did he have an occasion to smile like that? I still had dreams about him in the end. How his jaw had clenched when he pulled a gun on Valentina Coppell. How hardened his stare had been when he'd leapt into that helicopter and flown it up into the rift. His sacrifice had saved us all. I just wished I had a chance to say goodbye. He knew what he was getting into. So do I, I said. But you don't. So you can forget about this little buddy cop fantasy of yours. Understood? That water looked like somebody had kicked him in both kneecaps. Understood. He mumbled. He disappeared from my doorway, his footsteps thunking dejectedly down the hall. Maybe I'd been too hard on the kid. I mean, at the end of the day, he'd only wanted to help. But I knew where this road ended up. It was long and painful and lined with more bodies than you could count. I'd chosen to walk that road, but if... Well... If I could keep the newbie from walking with me, I would. I had enough blood on my hands already. The inspector called around 2pm, which did little to improve my mood. Another body had popped up. He didn't share too many details over the phone, but it seemed clear enough that we were dealing with another semblance situation. I grabbed my coat and I left the station. It was only a short drive down the road into the heart of Main Street, where the third victim had been found. The scene of the crime was a small tuxedo rental store, tucked just behind the bank in the center of town. I parked my cruiser and walked inside. A bell over the door jangled at my presence, but no one came forward to greet me. I was surrounded on all sides by circular clothing racks and pale mannequins and tight-pressed suits. There seemed to be a small commotion coming from the next room over, so I pushed through the door to investigate. The inspector was waiting for me there, along with a crime scene photographer and well-dressed man who presumably ran the store. The owner looked shaky and unable to stand. His body slumped forward in a small folding chair. The photographer was snapping pictures of an open changing room booth. 
I shielded my eyes from the flash and I stepped over to join the inspector. What are we dealing with? I muttered. Our victim is a 16-year-old boy named Joe Cabrera. He told the clerk he was looking to rent the tuxedo for an upcoming school dance. Joe had gone to try on the suit when the clerk heard sounds of a struggle from the changing rooms. By the time he arrived, Joe was already dead. And how do we know this is a semblance thing? I asked. The inspector gestured toward the changing room door. See for yourself. I brushed past the photographer who was fiddling with the lens of his camera and poked my head through the doorway. The victim was on the smaller side. His body was slumped where it had fallen, his neck ringed by the darkest lines of bruises I had ever seen. I'd have judged that the cause of death if it wasn't for the fact that both his eyes were gouged out. One of them was lying in a sticky pool of blood in the changing room floor. The other was pierced straight through by a coat hanger, held by the tall, faceless figure in the back room. It was a mannequin. The dummy was wearing a gray designer suit, its head tilted down towards Cabrera's corpse. Its milky white hands were smeared with streaks of blood. The mannequin wasn't moving now, thank the fucking lord. But the idea of it shifting and lifting up that blood-stained coat hanger made the flesh crawl on my arms. Yeah, that's a calling card, all right, I said. I left the crime scene and rejoined the inspector. He stared thoughtfully at the changing room door, gnawing on the tip of his cigar. It's getting bolder. This was just a child. A child. I always knew the semblance was a depraved being, but I never expected it to think so low simply out of petty revenge. Sounds like a real piece of shit, I said. But where does this leave us? We're no closer to finding it than we were before. The inspector was quiet for a moment. Maybe we are. One set of murders tells us limited information, but two sets a trend. The Dupons were biology teachers in Pacific High, and young Joe here was buying a suit for his high school dance. I finished. Shit. Do you think it's targeting the school? Those children are the future of Pacific Glade. Maybe it's a bit dramatic to say so, but it's true. If the Semblance wants to strike at the heart of this town, that's where it'll go. At that moment, my comms erupted in static. I brought it up to my mouth to say, repeat. I still couldn't pick up more than a couple of words, so I drifted out of the store and onto the sidewalk. The inspector trailed me there. Disturbance at Pacific High School. Uh, repeat, we have received a distress call from a teacher about a, a, a disturbance at Pacific High School. I locked eyes with the professor. His expression was grim. I was ready to hop into my cruiser and go screaming down the street, sirens blaring when a second voice came crackling over the radio. This is Officer Atwater. I got two other officers with me. We're on our way. God damn it, I hissed. I told him to stay out of this. As far as he knows, this is an ordinary distress call. He probably doesn't have any idea what he's getting himself into. We'd better hurry. That was all the urging I needed. I took the wheel. The inspector climbed into the passenger seat and we were off. The high school was halfway across town. I just hoped that we'd beat Atwater and his team there before things really hit the fan. We could hear the incessant clang of the fire alarm as soon as we pulled into the Pacific High School parking lot. The school itself was a small building, just a one-story with a couple of classroom wings and a slope-roofed gym jutting from the right. 
There wasn't too many cars around. It looked like we'd arrived just as the mass exodus of buses and parent pickups. The traffic loop was near empty except for a pair of police cruisers. I felt my heart sink as I pulled up behind them and killed the engine. Atwater's here, I said. I stepped out of the car and glanced around, but there was no sign of life except a single bird perched on top of the flagpole. The inspector emerged from the passenger side, his head tilted. Do you hear something? He asked. The smoke from his cigar drifted towards the gym, as if scouting ahead. It was hard to hear much of the blaring alarm, but eventually I picked it out. A chorus of screaming, all young girls, their their voices high and terrified. I headed towards the gym, gun raised, but the inspector stopped me. He was looking up towards the front door of the school. His teeth were gritted, and I could see him biting on the end of his cigar. I followed his stare. Perched by the front steps, on a pedestal made of tarnished metal, was a bronze statue of a catamount, the high school mascot. The statue was humming, letting out a metallic buzz that made me want to clap my hands against my ears. I watched as the carved muscle on the mountain cat clenched, its mouth opened in a silent snarl, then its head turned towards the two of us. It leapt off the pedestal and charged, the ground trembling with each pad of its heavy paws. I fired a smatter of shots at the approaching cat. The bullet struck its bronze hide with a clang and a flash of orange sparks. But otherwise, that didn't do shit. I clambered backwards and tried to take cover behind my cruiser. The inspector didn't move. He stood his ground, trench coat whipping behind him in the wind. The catamount leapt at him, its fangs bared, and the inspector slugged it in the face. His fist collided with the side of the statue's cheek with a hollow boom. The giant cat went flying into the parking lot and collided with a stationary car, crumpling into its frame and setting off yet another alarm. It stirred feebly in the wreckage. The inspector strode across the pavement with that eerie glide of his. Fedora tipped low. I'll handle this, he called back to me. Go protect those kids. I rose from my hiding place and bolted towards the gym. My heart pounded. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts, offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. The screams were louder now. I could I could hear a few pleas for help in the midst of all the shrieking, checking to make sure that I had just a few shots left. I barreled through the side door and burst into the gym, my shoes clacking on the rubber floor. At first, I couldn't tell where the screams were coming from. The lights were dim. The gym appeared to be empty, its floor strewn with sports balls of all varieties. And then I saw a figure in a plush catamount costume prowling by the front of the bleachers. It moved with a kind of low jerkiness like there was nobody inside to fill its limbs which could only mean the semblance was pulling the strings it clutched a javelin in its furry paws the tip of the spear was stained with flecks of dripping blood stop i barked bringing up my gun 
but the mascot didn't react to my voice. It simply reared back and stabbed the javelin through the gaps in the bleachers. Another round of screams issued from behind the stands, and the catamount withdrew its dripping spear, its fake plastic eyes glaring. I said stop! This time, I didn't wait for it to listen. I advanced on the empty costume, planting a bullet through its forehead. A cloud of cloth and stuffing burst from the point of impact. When in doubt, go for the headshot, right? But the bullet only seemed to have distracted the puppet. It turned to me, one eye dangling by a thread, and hefted its javelin. I did a hasty somersault, just in time to avoid being skewered. I could feel the breeze as the spear whiffed past my left ear. From the ground, I fired another shot to the costume's Pacific High jersey, which already seemed to have a few bullet holes in it. Atwater? Had he been here? I scrambled to my feet. This time, when the javelin stabbed at me, I twisted aside and grabbed it before the catamount could pull it back. Its grip was surprisingly strong for a bunch of moving fabric, but I managed to wrench the javelin away and bash the puppet in its chest with the blunt end. The costume flopped backwards, bending cleanly in half. The screams of fear from behind the bleachers had turned into screams of encouragement. I took the spear and drove it cleanly through the mascot's chest. The puppet slumped back as I charged forward, running the javelin into the wall again and again and again, leaving bigger dents each time, until finally the spear seemed solidly stuck into the sheetrock. The costume scrabbled at the javelin jutting out from its chest, but I didn't give it a chance to wriggle free. I reached out and I yanked the stuffed animal head clean from its body. A breath of air escaped from inside the costume, like a thousand voices sighing, and the whole thing went limp. I chucked the head towards the basketball hoop and backed away for the moment. At least, that seemed as dead as a costume should be. I was suddenly swarmed by a crowd of high school girls in running shorts who were crying and trembling and thanking me profusely. None of them seemed to have been stabbed by the javelin, which was a small blessing, but their coach hadn't been so lucky. She came staggering out of the bleachers on the arm of a cop I recognized. It was Lola Vasquez, one of our veteran officers. There was a bloody hole in the coach's arm that was gushing steadily onto the gym floor. Officer, I said. I pushed through the crowd and went to help steady the injured woman. Vasquez propped her up against the wall and got to work trying to tie up a makeshift tourniquet using strips of t-shirt. The cop was shuddered and short of breath, but Vasquez knew her stuff. I knew she'd get the other woman patched up just fine. Was Atwater here? I asked. He went on ahead, she replied. She didn't look up from her bloody task. There was another commotion coming from down the hall, somewhere near the auditorium. Clark and Atwater went to check it out. I'll go find him, I said. Do you have the situation under control here? I'm good, Sheriff. This time she did glance up. No clue what's going on, but I got this. You should go and help the boys. I tried to smile. They always need us to save their asses, don't they? Lola smiled back, but it was a weary smile. I left her with a coach and a swarm of scared track girls and headed for the exit. She had enough to deal with right now. I've always found something creepy about empty school halls. Places that should be bustling with life, but aren't. The halls of Pacific High were no exception. Rows of painted blue lockers stretched off and to the left and right. The dirt-scuffed tiles had a scattered pattern of colors that made my head ache. It would have been utterly quiet if the fire alarm wasn't still clanging overhead, drilling into my ears. I hefted my gun and I hurried down the left hall, praying that I was heading in the general direction of the auditorium. I kept expecting the semblance's animated goons to jump out at me at every turn. 
Each time I turned a corner, I flinched, keeping my gun held high, but the halls stayed as empty and quiet as ever. If there was anyone left in the building, they were staying out of sight, or they were dead. I tried not to dwell on that alternative. The auditorium doors were hanging wide open when I arrived, which made my heart sink. I ran inside and I glanced around. The lights were dimmed, but not completely off, giving the unsettling illusion that the rows of seats had turned into gravestones. There were a few shadowy props darkening the back of the stage, and there, in between them, I could see movement. It was a jerky, hollow movement, like clothes shifting without a body to fill them. I ducked behind cover of the seats and made my way carefully up the aisle. As my eyes adjusted to the dim light, I saw the figures on the stage for what they were. Empty theatrical costumes, held upright by... by invisible strings. There were three or four of them up there. I guess the school was doing some kind of period piece because I saw a lot of frills and cloaks and petticoats. One of the costumes clutched a buzzsaw in its gloved hands. Another one held a wireless power drill. None of them had heads, but they turned their collars from side to side as if searching for something with unseen eyes. I wasn't sure what a bullet would do against a being like this. Probably rip through the fabric and keep on going, which meant my best chance of staying alive was keeping low and sticking to the shadows. I didn't need to encourage these costumed puppets. I just needed to find Atwater and Clark and get us the hell out of here. I was just about to sneak up on stage when a hand shot out from the first row and latched onto my arm. To my credit, I didn't cry out, which probably saved my life. I whipped my gun around and pointed it at my assailant's forehead. It was Officer Ray Clark. He let go of my forearm immediately, raised his hands, his face beaded with nervous sweat. Where's Atwater? I hissed. He went on ahead, Clark whispered took the drama, kids, and ran backstage. Those things swarmed us, so I had to take cover. I've been waiting for an opening to, to follow Atwater, but there's too many of them. I'll go after him, I said, but I need you to distract these things. The officer's already pale face blanched. I'm not going anywhere as long as they're blocking off backstage, I went on. Besides, I need you to get the inspector. He's out front dealing with his own situation, but I think... I think we're going to need him here. The mention of the inspector seemed to reassure Clark somehow. Okay, Sheriff, he said. She took a shaky breath. I'll go get him. You stay safe now, you hear? I always do, I replied. Clark nodded and pulled himself from behind the seat and bolted down the aisle towards the open door. I ducked low as a rustling of fabric came up from the stage. The empty costumes floated past me, moving with an eerie grace, their tools humming, and when I, when I was sure that Clark had their attention, I emerged from my hiding spot and darted towards the steps, trying to keep my footsteps from making any sound. I had just climbed on stage when my toe collided with a fallen pipe. It clattered across the floorboards, coming to a noisy halt against the far wall. I froze. When I dared to look back behind me, I saw one of the costumes had turned in its flight and was gliding steadily back in my direction. It was the one clutching a bright yellow power drill. The tool came to life with an electric whir. Fuck, 
I breathed. I turned and ran to the dark space behind the curtains, nearly plowing into a ten-foot-tall model of a tree. Everything was barely lit, so the sea of props and costume racks looked like a shadowy minefield. One step would trip me up and leave me at the mercy of this killer puppet. I wondered if Atwater and the drama kids were crouching somewhere in the darkness. How the hell would I find them with this thing in my back? I heard the clatter of hurried footsteps. I followed the sound towards a door in the back of the room and burst through into another bright, expanse hallway. Down the hall, past a second stretch of blue lockers, I saw a door close with the quietest of creaks. I approached the door, and I tried jiggling the handle, but someone had locked it from the other side. There was a beige curtain pulled down over the glass, so I couldn't see anything inside the room. I banged on the door. It's Sheriff Marconi! I shouted. I know you're in there, officer. Come on, let me in! There was a murmur of voices, followed by a quick hushing. I glanced nervously back down the hall. The backstage door was opening, and I saw a flap of lacy fabric emerge from the darkness. Power drill, still clenched in its gloves. I lost my composure and began pounding on the panel of glass. For fuck's sake, Zach, open the door! I heard a muffled swear, then the sound of a lock clicking. Atwater opened the door and pulled me inside. I found myself in a dimly lit arts classroom, surrounded by tables and easels and a crowd of terrified students. Several hulking shapes under paint-spattered tarps sat in the corner. Atwater slammed the door shut and turned the lock again. A shadow appeared behind the curtain, accompanied by a loud electric whine. Atwater backed away as the handle moved slightly from the other side. I'm sorry, Sheriff, he muttered. Wasn't sure if you were one of those things or not. What's going on? One of the drama kids whispered. He must have been about 16 with a single pierced ear and a curl of dyed red hair. A girl with a swishy blue costume dress clutched at his arm. The rest of the students looked scared out of their fucking minds. I saw one of them slump into the corner, crying into her sleeve. It's hard to explain, I said. The important thing is that you kids stick with us, okay? We're going to get you out of here. Easier said than done. The shadow behind the door had stopped trying to turn the handle, but it refused to budge from the spot. Its power drills continued to whir steadily in the background. We might have been able to make a break for it, but there was a lot of us crammed into this room, and I wasn't going to risk the kids' lives on maybe... There had to have been another way out of there. Atwater had his eyes locked in the door, beads of sweat running down his brow. He must have noticed me staring back when he turned and flashed me a faint smile. Guess I'm adding this fight after all, he said. Don't get too excited, rookie, I said. Just because you got yourself in this mess doesn't mean... A terrified shriek cut me off. I whirled around and almost got knocked off my feet by the sudden swarm of drama kids who had rushed past me to hide against the wall. The source of the terror became clear. The tarps had fallen off the lurking shapes in the corner, revealing three life-size wooden figures. They looked like artist models with shifting joints and smooth, rounded heads. And they were moving. The figures heaved themselves off their stands and began to stagger towards us, limbs swinging. I lifted my gun, but Atwater beat me to it. He stepped in front of me and fired a shot at the approaching figure. Its shoulder exploded in a cloud of splintery shrapnel. But it kept on going, its wooden fingers curling into a fist. It reared back and bashed Atwater across the face. He went flying into the corner, his body limp, and smacked his forehead against the corner of the teacher's desk. I tried not to focus on the slowly growing pool of blood under the rookie's cheek, or the screams of the students huddled behind me. I just fired a single shot through the head of the lurching puppet. Splinters flew everywhere, and the figure fell forward in a lifeless slump, knocking an easel to the ground. I made short work of the other two. Slivers of wood spraying across the wall and ceiling as the bullets ripped through their skulls. 
The echo of the gunshots lingered in the classroom, and I could hear several of the students sobbing. Atwater, I breathed. I holstered my gun and ran to the officer's side. The rookie had a nasty gash on his head from striking the side of the metal desk. His eyes were closed, but I couldn't get a response out of him, no matter how much I repeated his name. I held a hand over his open mouth. There was nothing. Not even a little gust of breath on my warm palm. No, I whispered. I tried so hard to keep him out of this. I, I'd been firm with him, maybe even rude, but just so that he wouldn't follow me down this path. But I caught up to him anyway. I took his clammy hand and I gripped it, as if I could somehow squeeze the life back into his body. I might have knelt by him for a while. The sudden knocking at the door hadn't jolted me back to reality. One of the drama kids screamed, uh, New shadow had darkened the curtain, one even taller than before, and I wondered what kind of fresh horror the semblance had dropped up this time. The handle turned, the lock resisted, and then the person on the other side bashed at the door hard, so hard that I saw splinters from its frame. I got to my feet, hand hovering above my holster. The door trembled and the kids cowered. The lock held out as long as it could. Finally, it snapped. The door swung open, and a looming figure appeared at the threshold. Curls of white smoke billowed around its silhouette. It was the inspector. Relief flooded through me, but the kids continued to cower. I guess the inspector was pretty intimidating, if you didn't know the guy. He stepped into the classroom, ducking his head to fit under the doorway, and I saw the costume that had been chasing me lying in a lifeless heap on the ground. The power drill had finally stopped its whirring. What happened out there? I asked the inspector. Officer Clark had just arrived when the catamount statue stopped moving, he said. I thought the semblance was trying to lure me into a trap at first, but after some time it did seem the life had gone out of it. I followed Clark's direction back here and found this empty costume lying on the floor. He knelt down to examine it, his slender fingers slipping across the fabric. I assume this hollow shell was chasing you. Yeah, I said. Good riddance. What I don't understand is why the semblance seems to have backed off. The inspector rose to his full seven feet, puffing thoughtfully on a cigar. It's had us separated, at its mercy. So what changed? I stayed quiet. The semblance... But I knew the answer. The semblance had called off its minions as soon as Atwater had dropped dead in front of me. It had played its game, sent its message, and now we had to deal with the aftermath. Maybe the inspector hadn't been its target this time. Maybe this particular nightmare had been all about me. Is everything okay? I glanced behind me. The drama kids would be fine. They'd traumatized for a while, probably. But otherwise, they'd get out of this without a scrape. Our hothead rookie wouldn't be so lucky. His great big body was slumped into a heap, like an animal carcass after a hunt. I stared back at him, and I closed my eyes. Almost, I replied. An ambulance was waiting for us when we got outside. Vasquez was helping an EMT 
load the coach into a stretcher while the group of track girls huddled nearby, whispering nervously to each other. Clark and I carried Atwater's body back between us. The inspector trailed behind, his footsteps silent. He offered to help, but Atwater had been... had been one of our men. We felt duty-bound to do this for him. The EMT brought out another stretcher for Atwater, and we loaded him up, being careful not to jostle his head. Not that it would do any good now. If it weren't for the bloody gash on his forehead, I... I might have thought that he was just sleeping. He was a good guy, Clark said quietly. He was a pain in the ass, I replied. But he didn't deserve this. The inspector glided forward suddenly, nearly knocking me aside. He bent down by the side of Atwater's stretcher. His cigar smoke spiraled down and stretched little feelers across the rookie's body like a dozen hands made of solid fog. The feelers tapped his body for a few seconds, then retreated back into the inspector's cigar. He straightened up. He's alive. It's faint. But his pulse is there. What? I barely heard my own voice. My feet felt rooted to the ground, but the EMT didn't waste a second. He stepped forward and began issuing CPR. I watched numbly as he went through the chest compressions and breathed down at water's windpipe, and part of me didn't believe this would actually work. There was no way that he could get that lucky, but after a minute of solid CPR, Atwater sputtered and jerked to life. Ah! Oh! He moaned. He lifted his hand to his bloody head, then winced. His dazed blue eyes open. Sheriff? You lucky bastard, I breathed. I thought we'd lost you there. I, I'll go down that easy, he said. He smirked that infuriating smirk of his. A loud caw made me look up. The bird perched on the flagpole lifted its wings in an agitated flutter, then took off into the sky. I watched it go until the afternoon sun grew too blinding. The inspector stared at it too, his lips set in a hardened line. The semblance had stuck around to watch its final act. But things hadn't gone according to plan. It hadn't expected us to bring Atwater back from the brink. It hadn't counted on everyone walking away from its little puppet show. It had orchestrated everything to break our spirits, but it had failed. I was sure it was out there somewhere plotting its next move, but I didn't care. I'd take a victory where I could get one. Hey there, kids, and happy Halloween. It's me, Mr. Creepypasta, and I wanted to tell you thank you so much for watching tonight's video or listening to tonight's episode, this October fest on the podcast. If you're not listening on the podcast, then you always can listen on the podcast at Spotify or just about anywhere you find a podcast. And if you're not listening on YouTube, then you can find it on YouTube or just about anywhere you find a YouTube. If any of you guys are interested in some of the audiobooks or actual books that have horror stories in them that I've worked on, you can always check out that description down below. In there, there's a couple of different links to some horror books and horror audiobooks and new things. Like, hopefully, there'll be a Tales from the Gas Station Volume 3 link down there in the next few days, which I'm referring to right now, because if you look and it's out, it'll be there. <laughs> also, I wanted to say thank you, all of you, 
who are supporting me on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash MrCreepyPasta. If you ever want to help support the show, keep the lights on, feed my cats and the like, you can always head over to patreon.com slash MrCreepyPasta, and you can support the show there. Even $1 is greatly appreciated. And I have a very special thank you to these guys, such as Jordan Alexander Sanchez, Mr. Thud, Ken Lando Higuchi, Chumpinski, Nico Kayo, Tristan Pelton, Stephen Van Hus, Chance Burnett, Deanna Krauss, G. Weevil 3, The Red Oak Shield Virus, Corey Kenshin, Pothead Holmes, Rival 1, Jimbo the Hutt, Caspian, Jordan Nels, The Village Witch, Hades Nephew, Jordan Wayne Deckart, Bradley Lipe, Anne Charon, Acid System, Mike Bullock, Fooly Cooly Dude, Prozac and Pancake Appreciation, Brian Arse, Cryptic Nightmares, Shadow Morningstar, Brianna Wright, Someone You Love, Said the King 56, Bad Honey, S-Man, Kiri the Sloth, Thomas Burgett, Liam Newman, Sky Harbor, Caleb Dougal, Last Blade Song, Rafael Rodriguez, The Ginger Bros, and Aaron Stormcrow. And another thank you to all you guys who are in the description down below. Thank you guys so much for watching. Thank you all for listening. And I hope you all have a wonderfully happy... Halloween. Sweet dreams. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.